This is God's word. Thanks, Lonnie, for reading. Um, Can I pray for us before we start? Uh, Father, we ask that as we turn our attention these final moments this morning to really what your word is, that you would speak to us. You promised to use your word like we've heard about the last two sessions yesterday, um, that you answer the depths of our questions, and you also use your word as a power to transform. So we ask that you would keep that promise this morning. Use this word that was inspired by the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit who has dwelled for all of eternity with you and the Son, and the same Holy Spirit who lives inside of believers, would you use him to speak to us? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Also, I want to thank Joe for doing the slides. Thanks, Joe. So again, I'm Dan Smith. I'm the RUF campus minister in Arizona at the University of Arizona. Um, We moved there two years ago. Before that, we were, my wife is Brittany, my son is Jonah, my daughter is Penelope. We lived in Tyler, Texas at the University of Texas at Tyler, where we did, we didn't live there, we lived in Tyler and did ministry there for RUF. And several years ago, in March, right around my birthday, actually not long before we decided to move out here to the west, I got one of the most humbling and humorous birthday gifts that I've ever gotten. Brittany and her mom, Patty, decided to gift me 10 sessions with a personal trainer. (laughs) So there's nothing like, nothing better for a gift than a critiquement. I love you so much that you need a change. My trainer was great. His name is DeWalt. He's South African. He's a former rugby player turned bodybuilder. And he is swole and he is cut and he has muscles in more places than I realized that you could have muscles. And the one thing about DeWalt that makes him a unique trainer and actually makes him pay attention and focus a lot is that he is blind in his straight away vision from an accident from when he was little. But he can see with his periphery. And even though he was blind, he could clearly see how out of shape I was (laughs) and what I needed for help. See, he was studied and he knew how to implement his expertise. He was a certified personal trainer and was doing more study at the university to learn more. He was you guys' age, maybe like a year or two older. And he was an authoritative expert in the field. And I needed his authoritative expertise to help me know my problem and what I needed to do about it. So what did I do? I had to admit that my understanding of health and fitness in my own body was limited. And I needed to admit that he was the expert and the authority in our relationship. He was the authority on health and fitness. So I submitted to DeWalt's authority, and he began to train me and help me grow and change and begin to move towards health. And in my journey towards physical health, I had to submit to somebody else's authority. You and I are constantly wrestling with this idea of authority and expertise. 
By authority, I mean the right and the power to give final decision on a subject. As we're growing up, we submit to the authority of our parents or our caregivers, whoever that might have been. We really don't have a choice. Subconsciously and by necessity, we trust that they have the right and the power to take care of us and make decisions for us. And for some of us, that goes really well, and hopefully a lot of us. But for others of us, that doesn't go well, and seeds of mistrust are sown into our heart about authority. But our relationship with authority doesn't just end with our caregivers or our parents. It extends to other people. We had teachers, we had coaches, we had doctors, we had babysitters, pastors, youth leaders, Girl Scout leaders, camp counselors. Growing up, we had authority figures all around us. Some were really bad and affected how we think about authority. Some were good and hopefully helped us begin to trust people in positions of authority. But all those authorities exercise some right and power of final decision over some aspect of our life. Now that we're adults, and you guys are adults, we realize that we live in a culture where people, including us, deeply mistrust authority. If anyone, we mistrust anybody's right to have some final decision that might affect us. We become cynical and quick to doubt the authorities and the experts, the quote authorities. Sometimes it's for good reason, because we've seen doctors misuse their authority and damage a patient. We've seen a teacher misuse authority and abuse a child. We've seen a politician misuse authority for the sake of that politician's party or their quote people, their tribe of people. We've seen church leaders misuse authority for their own gain rather than the gain of God's kingdom. As we grow into adulthood, and again, you guys are already adults, you're not kids, we begin to exercise authority on our own lives, and that derived authority is transferred to us. And this is a good thing. As part of growing up to be an adult is gaining some authority on your own. We begin to exercise the right to determine our own lives, make our own decisions of who we want to be in the world. But I would argue that so often we go too far. We believe that we are the authoritative expert about ourselves and the world that we live in. And we don't want to listen to anybody. We don't want to listen to our parents. We don't want to listen to our friends. We buck against them. We want the right to decide what to do with our time, our resources, our bodies, our education. We want that right. We want to take it for ourselves. Subconsciously, we think, hey, I live in me. I know me, and therefore I should have the right to decide everything about myself. Nobody else should be able to speak into my life. But the reality is, is that we can't actually clearly see our whole selves. We're like me before my trainer DeWalt, not actually being able to see myself and know myself and what I needed. We need an expert authority from the outside to speak in and who knows how to speak in and knows what to speak in about what we need and who we are. Christianity proposes that, the authoritative, that there is an authoritative expert over us and the world. He's the one who created the world and everything in it. He created human beings in his image. By his role, by his nature, he is the ultimate authority. And in this passage, Jesus points that out in the last line. 
can you move to the last, uh, to, well, actually, yeah, can you move to the, thanks. So what's this last line? Not the last, the last line he says. When he's speaking to the devil, he says, be gone, Satan, for it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. What he's saying is that there's only one authority that's the ultimate authority, that's the ultimate good authority. Jesus is also assuming something else in this passage about how that authority communicates. What Jesus is assuming is that the Bible is God's authoritative way that he communicates with us. In each of the temptations, how does Jesus respond? What's the first thing out of his mouth? It's as it is written, or it is written. What he's saying is it is written, he's saying since the Bible says it, I'm going to trust that that's the authority of the way that God speaks. Over and over again throughout the Bible, the Bible says something along the lines of God is not a man. He cannot lie. Jesus, as well as other historical figures in the Bible, agree and they believe the same thing, that the Bible is God's written word and therefore we can trust it. Jeff talked about it a little bit last night. And what God intends to do through the Bible is authoritatively communicate to us about us and about the reality that we live in. It's like the Pottermore website. If you've ever listened to Harry Potter, at the very end of um, the Harry Potter stuff, it talks about check out more on Pottermore, the authoritative website and resource for all things Harry Potter and the Wizarding World. The the Pottermore website is curated by J.K. Rowling, and it is the authoritative resource about anything you ever want to know about Harry Potter and the world that J.K. Rowling created. What Jesus is saying and what his view of the Bible is, is it's the authoritative way that the authoritative God authoritatively communicates the truth of reality about the world that he created. And because the Bible is God's authoritative way that he communicates about the world that he created, Jesus is assuming that we must submit our lives to it. So I want us to look at three different situations where the devil tempts Jesus to ignore God's authority and where I think he actually tempts us as well. So this is a little bit of a weird passage. We often blow past it if you're a Christian and ever read it before because it's just weird. But God's spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness where Jesus begins to fast for 40 days. And now this isn't some like intermittent fasting for weight loss. And it's not some three-day cleanse to get his body and life in shape better. Jesus is fasting for, from food and water and praying and focusing and meditating on God the Father and on God's word. And he's really hungry. You and I would be hangry or anxious. <laughs> and along comes the devil. Hey, Jesus, I see, that you're, I see that you're hungry. You know, if you really were the son of God, you could take care of this problem right here, right now. Now, often Christians think, well, it's Jesus. He's cool. This is casual. This is just a casual exchange between Jesus and the devil. But y'all, Jesus was fully human. In the book of Hebrews, it says that Jesus was fully tempted in every way like you and I are. That means that he knows what it's like to be tempted to ignore God's authority. 
He was hungry, and he could have easily used his own power and authority to satisfy his own needs and desires. Satan, in a sense, is saying, hey, look, you're hungry. You should take it. God doesn't really know what you need. He doesn't really know what you want. He really is not providing for your hungers. But how does Jesus respond? He responds with Scripture. Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And what Jesus is saying is that the authoritative God authoritatively communicates the true reality that meets our deepest hungers. Jesus went into the wilderness to fast and trust God to provide. And if he would have done what the devil is proposing, he wouldn't have been trusting that God would provide. He would have been using his own power to get what he needed. The passage that Jesus quotes from Scripture is from Deuteronomy, and it summarizes why God let the Israelites wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Can we go? Yes, right here. Um, It says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God led you these 40 years in the wilderness. This is Moses writing. That he might humble you, test you to know what was in your hearts, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you. And he let you hunger, and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but, by, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. What Moses is saying to the Israelites, and what Jesus is saying to the devil, and really ultimately to us, is that God is in charge. God is the good authority over everything. He will provide We need his word to know that he is good and that he provides to answer the deep questions of our life like Jeff talked about last night. And now we must humbly trust that he is good and that he will provide because that's what it says. God is the ultimate good authority who will provide and the Bible is the way that he authoritatively communicates to us. So often you and I are tempted to try to satisfy our own hungers with our own power and authority in our own ways, ignoring what God says. At a concrete level, this would be like if you or I got really hungry and then decided because we were really hungry that we're just going to go steal food even though God says that we shouldn't steal. Most Most of us probably don't struggle with that. But I think it goes beyond just physical hunger. It includes the deep hungers that only God can provide for and satisfy. The deepest hunger for acceptance, our hunger for love. So often we try to satisfy or or ignore these hungers, one, by manipulating people to get them to like us. That's what we call people-pleasing. And I guarantee I'm not the only people-pleaser in this room. Or we do it by hooking up with other people for a moment of acceptance that then just fades away. Or we try to ignore the hunger by checking out through Netflix or video games or alcohol or through pouring ourselves into schoolwork so we don't have to think about the deep, hungering loneliness for acceptance we feel in our heart. But God is inviting us into something good and profoundly more beautiful Through Jesus, God is saying, I do love you. I will provide. 
You can trust me. I know what is good and what is best for you when it comes to the hungers and the longings in your heart. And I will meet them. Come and rest and feast on the good words that come from my word. In the face of temptation, Jesus is tempted to ignore God's authority to meet his own hungers and needs. But Jesus submits to God's authority from the Bible, and he invites us to do the same. The devil ramps up his game. He takes Jesus and they perch on top of the tower of the temple. They're overlooking this beautiful city, the city that had originally been created to display all of God's glory and magnificence. The temple that's supposed to remind God's people that God is present and that God is good and that God is the ultimate authority who will provide. And they're sitting on top of this temple and Satan says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself off. Like it's written. See, see, Satan is jumping in on the scripture quoting game too. He thinks he's got a chance. And he says, this is what scripture says, Jesus. He will command his angels concerning you. And later on it says, and their hands will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. What's he getting at? He said, come on, Jesus. You know that God's got your back. Trust his promises and live your life. He's got you. To understand the temptation, let's look how Jesus responds. Jesus says, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The passage that he's quoting is also from Deuteronomy. This time it's from Deuteronomy 6. There it is. Joe's so good. It says, you shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you. And then to summarize the end, when the Lord keeps, you, keeps his promise to take you into the promised land. So he says, I'm going to keep my promises. The Lord's going to keep the promises. And this is what you should do to live well in those promises. Not that I'm going to reject the promises or retract them. I'm going to keep them. But live out these promises by living well in the relationship. The devil is proposing this idea in terms of bold trusting. Jesus, just boldly trust God. But what it really is, is this reckless selfishness. It's trusting God's promise without submitting to God's authority for how to live your life. It's this mentality that says, and you're all, most of you probably haven't been here. I don't have to study for the OKIM test because I've prayed about it. That would be dumb. Don't ever do that. You tell your friends not to do that. You probably have thought about it, but probably haven't done it. Because that's not how you live well in the class. Few of us ever do that, but we might say something like, God's got me. I can go drink a handle. I can go drink eight beers. And since he's got me, I can get home safely. My guess is it's probably something more subtle than that that we're most often tempted by. The devil tempts us to ignore the potential consequence of sin in our own life and in the life of other people. It's this selfish mentality that God's got me. I trust God's promises, but I don't really care what he's asking of me. It's saying, since I'm a Christian, I don't care if I sin because I know he's going to forgive me. 
Now, this is absolutely true that you can never out God's grace. And I will stake my life on that. Jesus staked his life on that. The whole of Christianity is staked on that claim. You can never out God's grace. However, do you actually understand God's grace if you say, screw it, I don't care. I'm going to do what I want because God's got to forgive me. Do you actually understand God's grace if that's your attitude? My proposal to you is that you don't. Some of us struggle with that. And when we do, what we're assuming is that we have the personal authority to do whatever we want and still get the benefit of God's promises. Saying, yeah, God, I'll take eternal life, but don't tell me what to do with my body. Don't tell me that I can't date a non-Christian. Don't tell me I can't hold a grudge against people. Don't tell me that I can't ruthlessly stomp on my classmates to get to the top of my class. Come on, God. You and I got a good agreement going. You bail me out of jail and I'll call you sometimes. But that's not a relationship. That's not submitting to God as the ultimate creator and authority. That's you trying to manipulate God. That's me trying to manipulate God. That's us putting ourselves in the seat of authority and making God our servant. What Jesus is saying is that God is good. Yes, God makes amazing promises. And yes, God will keep those promises. But if you really understand God's grace, grace should lead to gratitude. And gratitude will lead to a life of seeking to trust and submit ourselves to God's authority. And the Bible is the authoritative way that the authoritative God that is good authoritatively communicates to you and me. In the face of the temptation to trust God's promises but ignore God's commands, Jesus submits to God's authority from the Bible and invites us to do the same. But the devil doesn't give up. He gets bold. He just straight up offers his promise. He says, look, Jesus, I own all this, everything that you can see from sea to shining sea and beyond. If you worship me, you can have it all. Now, that's debatable. I don't know if the devil actually owns everything. But that's for a different conversation. But he says, if you worship me, you can have it all. Every kingdom and all the glory will be yours. What's going on here? The devil is showing all his cards. He's desperate. He's offering everything that he thinks he has to offer. He's offering authority. The right and the power to make final decision over everything in the world. And I would say at the depths of our sinful, selfish, fallen hearts, this is what we think we want. We want the right and the power of final decision of our own lives. And maybe not all the kingdoms of the earth, but of a lot of things. So nobody else can bother us. It's what Jafar wants in Aladdin. And it's his final downfall because he wants everything and then gets into itty-bitty bottle. We want to be autonomous. I want to have the right to make all the decisions to build the kingdom of Dan. I want to bring Dan glory and Dan pleasure. And my guess is deep down this is what you want too. You don't want anybody telling you what to do. Or if you do want somebody else telling you what to do, it's because you don't want the responsibility of maybe being wrong. You want to tell somebody else to make the decisions for you. You want to have the authority over them to make the decisions for you. But that's not what you and I are made for. 
Jesus responds, Be gone, Satan. As it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Y'all, you and I were made by the living and loving God to worship him and find our deepest joy and delight in him because you and I are creatures. We were made to serve him. And it's not this like subservient, like groveling. It's a beautiful, dignified serving. This is what you deep down long for because the reality is that even when we believe that we are autonomous, we're going to submit our lives to some authority. And the Bible calls this idolatry. The two passages that Jesus quotes here, I didn't put them on the screen, but what they say right around it is, do not worship other gods. And then at the second half of that, he says, put away the false gods and worship the Lord alone. You and I were made to worship and serve something greater than ourselves. And part of our rebellion and fallen nature is that we will do that. We will go after the false gods that make the promises that we believe will meet our deepest desire to be accepted and loved. And for some of us, what we do, we do that through different things. Some of us do it through the God of intellectual superiority. And what that God promises, what that authority promises that you will, that I will be accepted and acceptable if I prove that I am intellectual, intellectually superior than everybody else I know. So what do we do? We do everything to submit. We study all the time. We get the right grades. We talk to the smart people. We listen to the right podcasts. We watch all the intellectual movies. We do everything that an intellectual person would do. Sometimes some of us even go so far and we make fun of these people. They wear fake glasses because they want to appear to be and look superior. But what really happens? We're left with nothing. It doesn't actually satisfy. Others of us don't do that, but we maybe go to the authority and submit to the authority of cool. What it means to be cool enough, whatever that is, that definition is for you or for the community that you live in. Wearing the right clothes, saying the right words, talking the right way, having the right attitude about certain things in life. Some of us do it through theology gods. We try to submit to have our theo- all our theology ducks in a row. And we think if I study enough theology and know enough theology and can argue the right theology, then I will be enough and I will be accepted and I will be acceptable. Others of us do it in other ways. Whatever, I would say whatever makes you anxious or angry when it's pulled from you or threatened is the false authority that you tend to submit to. Those false authorities are false gods. And we're going to submit to something. The God who made all of creation and you and me is the only God worthy of submission, to worship, to serve. And if you're a Christian here this morning, that's a daily process. It's repentance of turning back over and over when you find yourself serving other authorities, it's turning back to the one true authority and saying, forgive me, I'm coming back. I'm coming back, forgive me. It's turning again and again, 
Remember me starting out with my personal trainer? There was a lot of messing up. There was a lot of the Walt correcting me. And I've still got a lot of learning in that. There were times when I would eat lots of chips and queso and fried food and three hours later go work out and feel completely miserable like I was going to go throw up and have to cut off the workout because it was so awful. And DeWalt would point things out to me that he could see from the outside. And over time, I got a little bit better at living in relationship with fitness. That's what it's like for you and me to try to learn to submit to God. To learn and grow and have to try again because we fail. And slowly over time, God is growing us. Briefly, for the next couple of minutes, I want us to think about what it's like to submit to the authority of the Bible the authority of God in three different ways, three different areas of yourself, in what you know, or in your mind, in yourself, and in your will. So know, be, do. So how do we submit to God in what we know? I think it's good to take an audit of your life. Try to know the false gods that you tend to submit to, that you personally, that the, the devil tempts you to submit to. What's that authority promising? What does that whisper into your heart that you think it will give you? How are you orienting your life around it to get what you think you want? And is it delivering on your promises? Sometimes it might feel like it, and it's good to admit that. What happens when you don't get you want what you want from it? And instead, what does God promise to you in his word? What does God say about who you are? which leads to the next area I want you to think about. How do we submit to God and who we are? First, remember who you are as a daughter or a son of the living God if you're a Christian. Realize that you're also a creature and you're going to worship after something. But remember that you're not just a creature. You're a daughter or a son of the living God. Remind yourself of your identity. If you're not a Christian, I want, you to encourage, I want to encourage you to think about the things that you're submitting to. Who does it say that you are? Who does it promise that you are? Are you only who you are based on how you perform? What other people think of you? Man, that's not satisfying. That will crush you in the end. How do we submit to God and what we do? Do you know what God expects of you? Jesus boils it down to love God and love your neighbor. But what is that? It's a lot of different things. It could be. There's two different places in the Bible that I want to encourage you to think about. If, think about, go and look at the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. And Jesus rolls out what it means to love God and love our neighbor with our hands, with our lives. Or go to the Old Testament. If you want some Old Testament, look at the Ten Commandments. Read Exodus 19 and then 20, where the Ten Commandments are. This is where God spells out what it's like to love God and love our neighbor. And then talk to your campus minister, talk to your pastor, talk to your friend of, how do I do this? How do I begin to live these things out? Because those things aren't just a law to crush you. They're supposed to point you to Jesus, but they also, when you're a Christian, teach you how to live it out in your daily life. That's how we submit to God by living those out, submitting to his word. Let's think back to DeWalt, my trainer. 
Do I have to come from the outside to observe me and give me new knowledge? And I had to submit to him. But the true reality of our lives is that outside knowledge will never be enough for our lives to change. This is where this particular passage speaks something deeply profound. Profound enough to change our lives in its truth and its beauty. It doesn't just tell us Jesus' view of the Bible, that that's good. It reveals something about who Jesus is as the main hero of the Bible. Through the, whole, uh, through the whole passage, Jesus is living out perfect submission to God where we all have failed. In the garden, the very first human beings who were created were tempted by this same tempter. He tempted them around the same thing, doubting their identity, doubting God's authority by questioning his word. His famous line is, did God really say? He was sowing the seeds of mistrust in the garden. And in their failure, Adam and Eve brought all of us into rebellion and suspicion and mistrust about the ultimate authority that says God and God's word. So often when we're tempted by the same tempter, we fail and we have failed because he offers us these false promises that we want to believe and we do believe him. But in the wilderness, that same tempter failed when he met Jesus. He tried to get Jesus to question God's authority with a similar question. Where Adam and Eve should have prevailed, they failed. Where you and I should have prevailed over temptation, we failed. Where Adam and Eve and you and I failed, Jesus prevailed. He resisted the temptation of the devil and by doing so defeats the devil for us. When we submit to God's authority of the scripture, we believe that Jesus is the one who represents us. Every perfect thing about him, not just in this scene, but in his whole life, in his knowledge, in his being, in his doing, gets credited to you and to me. And all of our failures in our knowledge and being and in doing gets credited to him on the cross and he goes to the cross for you. And through his resurrection, he victoriously says, I have overcome sin and the devil and death for you. I have purchased you with my blood and made you God's daughters and sons. You are accepted and acceptable because I love you. That's the truth that we hear in the scriptures. And when we're submitting to the scriptures, that's the truth that answers the deepest questions of our heart. That's what you deeply long for. That's what I deeply long for. And it's been made possible. And we see it in the scriptures. So come, submit to Jesus through God's word and you will find what you long for and be- can begin to live in the freedom of what it means to be a daughter, of what it means to be a son. Sisters, brothers, friends, this is the truth that we hear from the outside. It begins to transform us in the inside when we submit to the authority of the good God in his scriptures. Will you pray with me? Father, we can't do this without you working. So we ask that through your spirit, you would equip us with faith. 
you would awake the dead parts of our hearts. Some of us, you would awake our hearts that are completely stony and dead, period. That we might begin to see that Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light, not because life isn't hard, but because he is good and he keeps his promises. And that to love and serve you in our life is what we are meant for. Would you do that for us? Would you do that for some of us for the thousandth time already this semester? And for some of us for the first time? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay.